This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. My name is Trevor Williams, and today on the show, we are going to geek out about plants with... Somebody who is an absolute expert when it comes to plants, he's a professor, he also has a podcast on plants, and he's also writing a new book about plants and their impact on our daily lives. So today on the podcast, we are having Vikram Baliga. He is a professor at Texas Tech University, and he's also the host of the Plantthropology podcast where he talks about plants, their impact on our daily lives. He interviews plant experts, talks about plant facts, and also covers some stuff that he teaches in his college classes. So he's been teaching for a while. He loves education. He's a great science communicator, and he really loves just teaching people about plants, about plant science, their impact on our lives. And we're going to talk about the plant revolution, how more people are getting plants, both for indoor plants and also starting a garden, how he started to make these really funny viral videos on TikTok and Instagram, which that's really how I first found him. He's debunking these crazy um, viral videos on plants. Like, oh, if you plant a banana peel, then you'll grow a banana tree, which is not correct. Um, So those are really funny. We'll also talk about his new book, Plants to the Rescue, which comes out in, I believe, July. And then we'll talk about hydroponics, aquaponics, and we will geek out over the absolute best ride at Disney World, and that is the land, and I will fight anybody that disagrees with that. It is so much fun. We talk about that, the 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 behind-the-seeds tour, um, and all that good stuff. And of course, if you want to check him out, the links will be below for his podcast, as well as for his website and his Twitter, so be sure to head over there and check him out. And of course, while you're scouring the internet, checking all that stuff out, don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash farmtraveler, where you will see clips of today's interview as well as clips from all of our other episodes. And of course, um, would appreciate subscribing or sharing with friends or family. That helps us a ton. We are getting ever so close to a 1,000 followers on YouTube. So we would greatly, greatly appreciate 
a subscription to YouTube if you'd like to see more videos, see more farm tours, and all that good stuff. So get ready for an awesome episode about plants, about plant facts, and all that good stuff. So please welcome to the podcast, Vikram Baliga. All right, well, Vikram, man, great to virtually meet you. I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and I got to be honest, you've got me hooked on your reels, where your, your, your TikToks, where you're like debunking these stupid videos of like somebody planting a <laughs> tomato and then a whole tomato plant grows. Or what, I saw one, somebody planted corn cobs and then corn grew from it or something just yeah, wild. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. It's always something. There's always something weird. <laughs> so, I mean, you're a plant nerd. What got you started that? You just saw those people doing the TikToks and you're like, let me correct those. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I was, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how I started doing it. We had done, um, for another podcast I'm on called In the Grow, mm -hmm. um, we had done like a reaction video series where we watched some of those, like me and my co-host. And uh, so... Like after that point, I was like, oh, this would be kind of funny, like if I did it too. And uh, so then I, I started getting into it a little bit. It was, yeah, I, I think, I just think it's funny. And like they make, they don't make me as mad as I probably pretend like they do. <laughs> but every time I'm like, I watch them, I'm like, like, I know this is like purposefully nonsense. Like it's nonsense on purpose. Um, But some people believe it. And I'm like, you know, that's not great. <laughs> well, I mean, the reaction of it is half of it. I mean, if people see you like super upset, they're going to be like, oh my God, <laughs> this is driving him insane. Like, I love watching this stuff. I mean, like, I love watching those videos because I, I feel like reaction videos get so much traction online because um, they do just love, you know, seeing reactions. I mean, there's one yeah. on Facebook I watch a whole lot. It's called Crafty Panda. And they have like a bunch of just random stuff. Like they, there was one where they were filling in a pothole, but you know, instead of just pouring in concrete, they like molded it using like super glue and this like they over-engineered it. And everybody in the yeah. comments is like, what are you doing? This is so stupid. Like this is a lot simpler than you're making it. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny because like, you know, and and that's why a lot of them do it. It's it's engagement bait. Uh and it gets me. Like I can't, I mean yeah, I, I am the target market, I guess. <laughs> the target market. Now, have you seen, I mean, since you started doing those reaction videos, like, was the traction just, like, skyrocketing? Because I've done a couple reaction videos on Instagram, and they get so much uh -huh. more traction than normal videos. They I mean, do. Did you see that as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they uh, they tend to be some of my, like, better better mm -hmm. ones in terms of the amount of attention they get. And not not always, but um it's definitely like people people like watching them i think they're they're funny they're stupid you know it's it's supposed to be kind of silly but um i don't know I, I i have fun doing it uh regardless of what uh you know it may seem like i think it's it, it, it's entertaining for me like it is stupid and they do make me mad because again i'm like people believe these you know what's what's funny is like there's the like five minute crafts ones. Oh yeah like Okay, these are clearly dumb, clearly dumb. But then there's some that live like sort of in the middle, like sort of in the middle where it's plausible enough or there's enough like sort of kind of good information that like people will believe some of it. And then 
like the rest of it becomes a problem. (laughs) It's it's there's just enough of like a nugget of truth in there that that people will believe it. And that's where I really like am like, okay, I can actually do some good with this because it's like if it's 40 percent true Mm -hmm. and then, you know, 60 percent not the last thing I want people to do is like fail at gardening um, because they saw some stupid hack online and uh, decided to just give it a shot. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's one, maybe this was not a great example, but there was one that you shared where they planted in eggshells and the, the whole claim there was like, it gives a little bit more calcium to the soil. I mean, is that a good idea or no? Uh, You know, Eggshells are fine, but <laughs> the amount of time it would take to like break that down into component parts where you're actually going to get any benefit from it is like, it's super long. And sometimes it can like restrict root development and root growth and those kinds of things. So like I tell people like with all these things, whether it's stupid banana peels that they want you to soak in water <laughs> or eggshells or anything like along those lines, just throw it in your compost mm-hmm. pile. Like th- those things are great. They do sort of what they say they're doing it's just the process is wrong like don't don't just like bury a banana peel with your stuff like go throw it in your compost and then yeah you get the benefits from it later yeah the compost rat is so much better i mean i've got like a small makeshift compost pile i haven't been doing anything with it i need to but um i would put eggshells in there and it would work out great but like you're saying it takes a long time for those eggshells the banana peels or whatever to break down versus planting it in a plant pot so not a good idea yeah yeah. Well, and I think people hear like, oh, the eggshells have calcium or the uh, banana peels have potassium or whatever. And that's not wrong, mm-hmm. but it's not just like readily plant available, right? Like there's stuff that has to happen. There's intermediary steps. Like your plant roots are not just like chomping on banana peels. It, it has <laughs> to break down into its like component parts before the plant can use it. So how long would that take for, say, let's say two examples of banana peel and um, some eggshells. Like how long would that take to break down and become like really good organic matter in the soil? So it kind of depends on where you Mm. are, right? Um, Because they're going to be broken down. Sorry, my computer's dinging at me. Let me put it on. (laughs) No, you're good. Do not disturb. Or I will inevitably get emails and a phone call this entire time. (laughs) You got to multitask, right? (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, yes, that is more multitasking is more of my life than i want it to be um so the the question was how long would it take so it kind of depends a little bit i think that your soil and what's in your soil is going to play a big Mm -hmm. role so for one thing soil microbial activity is what breaks everything down right so when we're talking about compost it is microorganisms and insects and all kinds of other stuff eating that material and processing it into um you know, new soil or, or mineral nutrients that your plants can take mm-hmm. up. So where I am in West Texas, like it's hot, it's dry. Uh, we don't get a lot of uh, rainfall. Our soils are real high pH. You know, you could throw a banana peel in the soil and like it, it might take a year. I don't know. It t- like it can take a while just because like we don't have necessarily the organic matter, mm-hmm. the microbial activity, all that to break stuff down. Now, if you were in say Georgia, uh, where they have like lots of organic matter in the soil, uh, pretty acidic soils, lots of microbial activity. It may take a month or two. Um, it just, it varies so wildly um, that again, I think that in general, like if you throw it in your compost pile, you know that it's at the, the right stage right, yeah. before you put it out. Like, you know, it's finished before you put it out. You don't have to like 
well, is that banana peel still down there? Am I still like, are there still chunks of eggshell in my garden or whatever else? And it doesn't, you know, a lot of people say that, well, it does, what does it hurt? It doesn't hurt anything. It's okay, maybe. But as um, those microbes are trying to break down the banana peel, break down the eggshells, they're actually going to feed on nitrogen in your mm. soil to give themselves protein and energy and all that to run the processes they need to, to break down the, the organic matter. Um, Cause that's what they do. That's, that's what they're after. They're after carbon and they're after nitrogen and there's plenty of carbon in the soil. And until it's broken down, that's a like great carbon source. So they're going to consume nitrogen. And so you can actually, if you don't use like finished compost, if you're using green manures and stuff um, that are not finished, you can actually rob nutrition from your soil and from your plants until that process is that process finishes and so like yeah maybe it's not the biggest deal in the world but it's also not doing directly what like people are being led to believe that it does Mm -hmm. that's interesting and i mean like you're saying it's a good idea if you have a compost pile you can already i mean you're essentially like kickstarting it if you've got a compost pile and you're putting in some scraps in there like you know that that soil is up to snuff and you're not throwing it in your backyard that you know you might not know that soil is doing but if you've got a compost pile, that's great. You're already like one step ahead of the game. Oh, for sure. For so sure. you're a plant guy. You have an awesome podcast. You're a professor. Like what inspired you to f- go down this plant route? Like what all happened in your story to, to go all the plant way? Yeah. So I have um, always been interested in plants. My granddad and I um, grew up gardening. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom and I lived with my grandparents till I don't know, I was 10 or 11. And, um, so like we always had a garden, we were always growing vegetables and we had fruit trees and all kinds of stuff. So like some of my earliest memories are, uh, actually messing around in the garden with my grandparents, mm. uh, my granddad specifically. And, uh, when I got into college, um, I was, I did a year of engineering and that was not my thing. <laughs> um, and so like, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and someone like suggested, well, just find something you like. And I've always liked plants. So I got into horticulture. And then, you know, 10 years, 12 years and three degrees later, there you go. Uh, I'm, I'm here and um, I've stuck with it and it's, it's, I enjoy it. I think it's, um, you know, it's funny because when I was doing it and even, you know, I, I started college in, in 2005, so I've been at it a mm-hmm. while, um, but like plants weren't cool. No one thought plants were cool. <laughs> uh, like they were like, why are you doing that? That's dumb. Oh like, yeah. Okay, fine. But uh now like plants are real trendy on on social media like there's uh, like uh, plant instagram or houseplant instagram or green instagram or whatever or tiktok or twitter or whatever else there's a ton of people into it it's trendy so i i think like for the first time in my career like i'm relevant which is weird <laughs> um, it's a good, it's a good to problem. more than just yeah yeah to more than just like the growers and stuff i've worked with um but but it's been a, a a really good field to be in. I think it's there's a lot you can do in the green industry, whether it's horticulture, agriculture, anything in between. Um, but also it's important, right? Because people have to eat, and we need to keep like having plants on the planet that keep growing and producing mm-hmm. oxygen and all the things that plants are supposed to do. And so, um, ultimately, like I feel like uh, it. I enjoy doing it because it matters. Like it, it feels like it matters. Yeah. You're like this really cool intersection where you've got a lot of really cool ag knowledge, farming knowledge, but also a lot of knowledge on the home side, like people that have plants at home, maybe they have a garden. 
And I feel like a lot of people, like they don't realize that can be their direct tie to agriculture, whether that's going straight into gardening or, you know, just having a simple house plant, you can go from there and, you know, start a garden, learn more about agriculture and all that good stuff. So you, you do a really good job educating both like gardening, people that have plants in their house and also showing a thing or two about agriculture. Um, but yeah, you, you're talking about like the green, I don't know, like a green revolution on social media. There's so many people out there like Epic Gardening, Hilton Carter, people that are yeah. showcasing like what all you can do just in your home or in your apartment with plants and like spice up, uh, you know, your rooms or your environment. Yeah. And I think part of it comes from, and, and this sounds weird. And I, I say this all the time and I think people kind of look at me funny, but growing your own food, growing your own plants is sort of a radical act mm. in some ways, I think like um, not that, and this is not, that's not like a dig on the food system, the agricultural system, because it's part of what we have to do. It's part of our society and our society works because there are people that spend so much time producing food that spend their lives feeding everyone else. Like that's why our society works. Um, but at the same time, like taking some of that power sort of back mm. and like growing your own lettuce or growing some tomatoes or herbs or even just flowers in your garden. Like it's empowering in a weird way, just because it, it is something that you're doing for you. You're feeding your family. It's taking care of some like very basic needs in your life. And I think sometimes, especially like in, uh, you know, I don't want to assume how old you are, but I'm just saying our generation, uh, and in younger generations, like it's, you know, we've watched the world over the past 20 years, like blow up in really slow motion mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, and being able to take like a little bit of control back and say, Oh no, Hey, I grew my own tomatoes. It only cost me $83 to grow four <laughs> tomatoes, but you know, it, there, there, you get that reward mm -hmm. out of it. Um, and I think that that has sort of led to some, whether people realize it or not, I think that idea of, oh, I can grow my own plants. I can improve my space. I can take a little bit of control over my like life and surroundings and everything else just by having some houseplants is really attractive to people. And like that doesn't even go into the like documented physiological, psychological health benefits um, of just being around plants. Like there's so much research into how like, uh, they've done a bunch of studies in hospitals and mm -hmm. stuff where they would look at patients that had either a view of a garden or access to uh, plant materials or even just like a plant that somebody brought them in their in their room and like wound healing is faster hospital stays are shorter the uh, patients report better sort of quality of life better moods um and they've they've quantified this and like studied this in study after study both in psychology and in, you know, traditional physiological medicine. And so just like being around plants is like good for us. It's just good for us. And I think people are starting to realize that again, like we got away from that at some point where, you know, in the thirties, forties, like everyone had a garden, everyone gardened, um, whether it was in a city, they may have access to like a victory garden or something like that, or they were not so removed maybe from, um, the plants around them and then between then and now sometimes it's like ah, you know i don't want to <laughs> deal with my landscape i'll i'll have the the yard with the lawn i mow once a week and the two trees i don't water and that's good enough and i think people are starting to kind of get into that place where they want to have plants around and they want to uh, be involved with nature even in their own little space yeah i feel like if you have a garden or even just plants like you're learning a little bit of like 
resilience. Like you're learning to take care of yourself and also plant. And you're like, you know what? I know how to grow some food. Push comes to shove. I might be able to supply my own food. But but you touch base on something. And I hear it all the time for with people that don't really like gardening or they're not into it. They're like, oh, well, you spend $100 to grow five tomatoes. Like, like the, the, the cost ratio there is kind of off. But you're like, you know, it's more than that. Like I'm learning a skill. I'm helping my local ecosystem, like at my yard or wherever it is. And so, yeah, I feel like you've got to take that out of context. I mean, oh, yeah, there's a yeah. lot there. Like you absolutely do have a point. Like you've got to buy so much stuff to grow just a couple of tomatoes. But I mean, if you do it right, you know, you can sell some, you can give some to friends and family. You're, you're learning a whole lot more. And, you know, like you're saying, you can also get healthier because you're outside. The plants can literally mm-hmm. help you physically, mentally, everything. So yeah, it's weird how plants are cool like that. Yeah, and I kind of, you know, and that was mostly a joke, but you know, <laughs> when you're learn it's it's like when you're learning, you always make mistakes and like learning a new craft always costs more money than it should, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm a woodworker and the the number of things I've messed up, like <clears throat> tools and materials alike as I was learning, I was like, "Oh man, I'm wasting money on this." And but I'm not. You're learning, you're teaching yourself something. And then you blank and you're down the road 5 years and you've got a full garden they came from seeds you saved from the previous year or that you traded with a neighbor for or that you harvested out of like vegetables you got at the grocery store. And then that cost benefit kind of flips, right? And so I think like there, the nice thing about gardening and is that is that the entry barriers are fairly mm-hmm. low uh, and people don't think that the entry barriers are low. It's like, oh, I live in an apartment. I live in a city. I rent. I can't like you can put plants in anything. Like if you've got, like a five gallon bucket you can punch some holes in the bottom of it get a bag of potting media and you can grow a tomato plant right you can or you can grow some herbs for your kitchen or or whatever like i think we have sort of let ourselves be convinced in some ways that like you have to have like an acre of land to grow mm-hmm. or you have to like have a big no you, you just you put plants in whatever you can put them in um and and again you just start somewhere you start somewhere and then uh, some people love it some people don't and that's fine uh, but I think the people that do find some value in it, do find some interest in it, get a lot of benefits. Yeah. And so, I mean, going off of that, speaking of growing plants, like wherever, I've I've seen that there's this huge popularity now in like home hydroponic units where you can grow, mm-hmm. you know, herbs or whatever you want in your kitchen or somewhere. Like, that's really cool. What do you think about stuff like that? Oh, I love it. I love it. I think that that's, you know, in general, in agriculture, I see controlled environment ag as sort of the direction we're heading as an Mm. industry. Um, Not to say that like the traditional row crop farm or anything's going away because it's not. Um, But I think as we struggle with like water resources and arable land Mm. resources Mm -hmm. and fertilizer problems and X, Y, and Z in a a warming climate, everything else, like finding new and controlled ways to grow plants and grow produce is sort of where the, we seem to be headed and I think like if people can get the little, you know, arrow garden or whatever and stick it on their uh, kitchen counter and have fresh basil or whatever, like I think that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's so fun. My work had one and then my grandma actually, she has, I mean, she's been a gardener her whole life, but never into like hydroponics or anything, but she bought this big vertical tower and grew tomatoes and peppers. And it was so cool to see her interact with it and be like, hey, I didn't know that this, you know, this technology was around and that this is a thing. And then, you know, they look it up, they Google it, and they're like, oh, wait, this is like on a large scale thing in agriculture. Like, I did not know that that tech was there. And here I am doing it in my own home, like growing produce, growing stuff. It's so cool. 
Yeah. Well, and you know, we've got, we're doing some research and, and one of our um, faculty specifically is in urban and controlled mm. environment ag. So a lot of her work and her grad students work is in, you know, hydroponics and uh, different types of hydroponic systems. Um, a grad student that I worked with as well uh, is just defended his, his uh, thesis and he studied aeroponics. Systems. Okay. So he designed like a, an aeroponics production system to grow lettuce just from like stuff you can buy at Home Depot. And uh, it's, you know, he grew them in these like big, like black totes, you know, like the, the packers that you would put old shoes. Yeah. In. I don't know. Uh, use like these little mist emitters and just like a, um, an, a marine pump and put it on a timer. And it would uh, a mist nutrient solution onto the roots of the plants um, that were just suspended in the lid of this, this container. Um, and, you know, in his study, we were looking at like double the yield compared to like a deep water hydroponic system, wow. and other stuff. And so it, yeah, there's an energy requirement and stuff like that. But uh, another grad student 3d printed a whole bunch of um, uh, aeroponic towers that you could grow like herbs or whatever else in. And he was trying strawberries and some other stuff. So like the, the, possibilities are kind of endless mm -hmm. you know i think the ability to like go turn an old shopping mall into a food production center is really cool um you know in parts of the world they're already doing things like uh using parts of apartment mm -hmm. buildings to do vertical farms and stuff like that so i i just think that the future with the technology that we've developed and the technology we have like the future is so cool in agriculture and uh you know we talk about how by 2050 they're supposed to be what 10, 11 billion of us on the mm -hmm. planet, something like that. Like we'll have 30% more mouths to feed. And I think we'll meet those challenges. I think that as long as we can figure out ways to do it equitably, right? So that all those people <laughs> have access to food uh, and make the technology available in different parts of the world. Like I think we can meet those challenges. Yeah, this tech is awesome. And I think it's a great complementary technology to traditional ag and traditional farming. And before I forget, um, I love hydroponics, but you talked about aeroponics. So I yeah. know hydroponics can save like 90% more water over the life cycle of the plant. Is there more, can aeroponics save more? Because instead of just, you know, submersing the, the roots in the water, you're spraying it. So can, can aeroponics save more water? Or is it about the same? You know, we see that the water use is similar. Okay. Like, uh, it, it depends a lot on the system. And, and one of the problems is that aeroponics is still fairly mm. new. And so there's not really any like hard industry standards, right? With hydroponics now, we have like best management practices and like what is a successful, you know, operation and things like that. And in aeroponics, there's only a couple of companies really doing it. And so we don't know. That's that's part of what our study kind of was to see like comparatively in terms of water use and water consumption, um, what's more efficient. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that in, you know, in some of it, it actually used a little more water, but it also created a lot more biomass, like a lot more plant. So in that case, like, yeah, we used a little more water, but we produced 50% more, a hundred percent more material. So we're still being real efficient. Um, I think one of the challenges is that the, again, the technology is new and there's a lot of like moving parts. You have to have pumps and you have to have spray yeah. emitters that can uh, aerosolize the, the nutrients. You've got to have, timers you have to have lights because usually this is going to be done indoors and all this stuff so i think it's a really cool technology i think it's a really viable technology because you can like save a lot of space you can do a lot of cool things 
Um, I just think there's there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. So um, let's geek out for a little bit. Have you been to the land in Disney World? Yes, I have. And it's my favorite. It is my thing. favorite ride. I absolutely love it. <laughs> and anytime I think about aeroponics, I think about their system because it's so neat. They suspend the plants and they have them on like a carousel. And then it goes yep. into this little, I don't know, this little vertical structure where the roots go in there and then it's kind of closed off. It, it's sprayed with the nutrients and then it goes out and it just aerates for like 15, 20 minutes as it goes around it. And it's so cool. I mean, they have like broccoli, um, just so much stuff growing that way. And you see these huge developed root balls just hanging there. It's wild, yep. but it's so cool. Yeah. Every time I go on that ride, my wife hates it, but she goes on it because she's <laughs> like, you know, I know you like it. It's okay. But we'll, we went on it, I think, twice in a row the last time we went. And it was amazing. The best ride. Because it's so cool. It's so cool. Oh, no, I'm with you. Uh, s- same thing. Like if we're ever at Disney, I'm like, hey, we have to go to Epcot <laughs> and we have to go to like living with the land because I want to sit on a boat and watch this happen. It's um, so much fun. We did. Have you done the behind the scenes tour? See, I have never gotten to do that. And I that want one's to. fun. I mean, I, it's technically behind the seeds, which is kind of cool. But um, yeah, they take you <laughs> back there. You can see um, the plant propagation rooms and all that. We held, um, I think it was an eggplant that was like two feet long. That they grew with one oh, of their wow. hydroponic systems, and I'm just like holding it, like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if anybody goes to Disney, highly recommend that. And even the behind the scenes tour, it was very fun and very educational. My biggest re- regret in college, I went to UF, is not interning and doing that one summer. That would have been so. Oh, much that would have been so cool, so cool. You know, and I think that brings up a, an interesting point because you talk about like the giant eggplant, and I remember when I was there, and it's been quite a few mm-hmm. years. Um, but they had like a, a, a giant tomato plant they had grown into a tree that was like 18 months old and had given them like a thousand pounds of oh tomatoes uh, or something, something crazy like that. Right. Um, I think that points out to me that we're not like our plants have so much more genetic potential mm. for yield and for things like that, than we can sort of match in a field setting. Right. Cause you've got all these extra stressors in a field from like, temperature and wind and weather and pests and all of that, uh, that, that we kind of hit this diminishing return point where at some point we're having to put so much stuff into it to get more produce out of it, bigger fruits or whatever else that it doesn't make sense. And then there's a lot of potential environmental impacts from like the amount of fertilizer we have to put on, but in a controlled environment, like it's crazy what the plants will do. It's like, no, we'll, I'll, I'll live here for 18 months. I'll make a a 10 pound egg plant. Like, (laughs) Like the plants, I, I, I just think it's interesting that when we talk about how do we breed better plants, how do we uh, meet some of these needs? It's like, well, no, the, the genetic potential is there. We just have to figure out how to be efficient and sort of maximize that as we um, look at like future production systems. That's a really good point. I heard a farmer years ago talking about, he was like, you know, when we farm, we're just trying to set the ideal conditions. The plant does all the work. We're just trying to set the ideal conditions with the soil, with the weather, but you can't really do that in a huge field because you've got the climate, you've got so many variables, pests and everything. But in confined environment agriculture, CEA, um, in a greenhouse setting, you can control it perfectly for those plants. So whatever they need, Mm -hmm. they can grow to their exact needs. And you can have, you know, the three foot eggplant can be a standard, which is wild to think about, but they could do it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's in a lot of ways, a closed system. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about like fertilizer runoff or, um, soil degradation or some of the other issues that we're fighting right now in conventional agriculture and field agriculture, 
um, that, that just kind of come with the territory, right? They're just sort of artifacts of how we have to do agriculture in order to produce enough food. Um, some of those things get taken out, like you're recycling the water back into the system. You're uh, using usually kind of some kind of soilless media or no media mm -hmm. at all, like in an aeroponic system. And so um, can we like, like I'll, I'll say, I don't think as it is right now, we're going to meet the world food demand just in controlled environment ag or confined environment ag. I don't, I don't think we're there. Um, but I, like you said earlier, I think it is a great like companion to conventional agriculture to fill in some of those gaps. And, you know, as we have new people studying agriculture and have, as we have new people getting into the industry, there's so many cool market opportunities there um, where, you know, if someone says, you know, I, I would love to be in agriculture, I'd love to grow food, but I just don't have, like, I can't, I, I don't have the capacity to farm a thousand acres or, or, you know, whatever it is like, okay, but there's other options. There's other directions we can take. Um, and I think our technology in the past 20 years has blown the doors wide open on this whole industry, um, in a good way. Oh yeah. I mean, it, no. it's, it's crazy to think about that, you know, the vertical farming space, for example, has been booming for just like three or four years. And I mean, there's no yeah. telling what it's going to be like in 10. I mean, it could be astronomical. I mean, you've, you've got companies like Aero Farms that are, they have billion dollar investments now, which is absolutely wild. So there's no telling what it can do in a couple more years. Yeah, we're looking at getting a um, like a freight farm. I don't know if you've ever seen a freight farm, like like um, old shipping is, container one. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's two or three companies that are mm -hmm. doing it now. Um, but we want to get one here at my university um, at the greenhouse, and you can grow something like four thousand heads of lettuce in wow. it in a shipping container, and it's like eighty percent automated. Two people can run the operation, um, and like. They cost a couple hundred thousand dollars, but you think about it like you can produce food nonstop mm -hmm. and all it requires is an electric hookup and a hose hookup. And that's it. And like the lights are internal, like the, the uh, nutrients come with it, like they provide like all this stuff. And so as we're thinking about like, how do we train students? How do we teach our students effectively? Like those technologies are what we need to be training them on. Not because like the old technologies are going away, not because we're like, not going to grow in the field anymore, but I think we have to know how to do both. I think our future agriculturists are going to have to have sort of a finger on both the sort of traditional methods we use and some of these new technologies. So uh, like if you want to be competitive in the industry, I think you got to figure out how to do both. That was so that was actually going to be my next question going off of that. Like, how do we balance like having new innovations, but also maybe just tweaking kind of the existing system just a little bit, like, you know, the best of both worlds. Yeah. And that's a tough question. And, and I, I don't know that I have the full answer to that. I, I wish I did. Uh, but I think that it is looking at our practice. So I, I think that we have to be careful never to be like completely settled in the way we do mm -hmm. something. Right. And, and in agriculture, we sort of fall into that trap sometimes. Well, like, you know, my granddad farmed this land 100 years ago and or 80 years ago, and this is kind of how he did it. So I'll keep doing it that way. That's that's a theme that comes up sometimes is that, well, if it's worked before, it'll work mm -hmm. again. Well, we, we live in a changing world, and sometimes that may not be true. So I think uh, always being able to like go back and look at our practices and be like, OK, why do we do it this way? Why do we um, 
plant in this way or water at this time or fertilize in this amount and then figure out how we can like is that the right way to do it could we get by with half the amount of nitrogen uh, could we breed a plant that would get by on half the amount of nitrogen can we come up with new technologies in terms of seed technology and genetic technology that our same practices are twice as efficient yeah. you know um and and you know i think a great example is the way we hit we approach um tillage today mm -hmm. in, our, in our set set systems right so 100 years ago uh eight, 80 years ago uh, leading into like the dust bowl and stuff like that 90 years ago um tillage was like mm -hmm. we till the soil we plant the seeds and hopefully it rains and the seeds come up and all that right because that's how you did it that's how you planted seeds and over time we've kind of figured out that oh no we need to keep our topsoil where it is like a undisturbed soil profile like holds a lot more nutrients and retains water better and the weed seeds germinate less and all of this stuff and now you see a lot more conservation tillage where people uh, plant in a stubble or they're growing cover mm -hmm. crops or doing all kinds of all of these new practices that we're still growing plants in the field we're still using the same basic principles we're just being more conscious of the way we approach the soil and i think as we go forward in time, those are the things that we're going to keep finding more of. Okay. Uh, another great example is irrigation tech, right? Uh, not, it wasn't that long ago that pretty much everyone in agriculture was irrigating with like, uh, water cannons or, uh, un, like just open field irrigation and unlined ditches and all these things. And in my part of the world, like we realized pretty quick, we're, we're running out of water. Like I'm up here on the, the Southern high plains in, in West Texas. And, it's dry it's hot our aquifer is depleting our well production is down by 80 percent in some places because the aquifer is so thin. Oh, wow uh, you know wells that you could have gotten 1200 gallons out of 50 years ago are scraping to do 200 mm -hmm. now um so we had to figure out okay what do we do how do we like make sure that we're preserving this water and we've gone to like either subsurface drip in a lot of operations or like uh, a lipa system which is low energy precision agriculture where like a center pivot, you know, if you haven't seen a center pivot, for those of you out there, it's like kind of what it sounds like. There's a pivot in the center and it's like a tractor on a big bar that sprays water out the bottom. It just goes around a circle. So if you've ever flown over somewhere and you see like these big crop circles. The uh, crop circles, yeah, yeah. Pivot. I always think about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like now they drag drip line. So like uh, a lot of center pivots drag like four to six feet of drip line behind them. It applies all the water under the plant canopy exactly where it needs to go. And it's like, 85% efficient as opposed to like 40% efficient. So we don't have to completely like scrap the old system. There's still things that are really good about our old systems. It's just, okay, how do we do the same thing, but do it a little bit better? I, I think the key word here that I've honestly been hearing a lot from farmers lately is intentionality, like intentionally, you know, paying attention to how much water you're applying, what plants you're using, what fertilizers, pesticides, all that stuff. And I feel like the more yeah. we're doing that and everybody really in the industry is doing that, we're going to have more food, better produced food, better impacts on the ecosystem. So I think that's going to be a win-win. But yeah, I keep hearing that word intentionality over and over again. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that's a good, a good word that we should all keep in our minds as we approach our really whatever we do. Like, uh, but especially in this space, I think that's really good. I might need to trademark that or get some t-shirts like intentional farming. You should. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> That'd be perfect. All right. So obviously, you know a lot about plants, about um, plant systems and all that good stuff, obviously, because you're a professor. 
So how is that inspiring the next generation when it comes to plants, their impact, their, um, their impact on the environment, stuff like that. So what's that experience been like being a professor so far? You know, it's, it's really interesting because like I teach intro horticulture, mm. like principles of horticulture, and it's a non-majors uh, general science class. Like it's a core science at my university, uh, which is great because we get people from across the university that take it. We actually like poach a lot of students out of business and nice. other places because they're like, oh, we like plants. Like, good. <laughs> you know, instead of so instead of just getting like a general business degree, they'll come and study horticulture or plant science. Um it's it's cool because like I feel like my job as the intro horticulture guy, uh, and we teach about 400 students a semester live, probably another 50 to 100 online. Um, we've got three lecturers and five TAs and 15 or 16 labs a semester, so it's a it's a big course, right? Um, we may have five percent majors mm. across the program, maybe 10 percent majors across the program. So we get to like touch a lot of people or, or, you know, interact with a lot of students that maybe have never grown anything before and have never really thought about it. Uh, they don't necessarily like they hear, oh, you should care about the environment. But like without context, what does that mean? Right? Like, oh, you should be more environmentally friendly. Oh, okay, great. I would love to. I, what, is, what does that mean? So we get to teach them a little bit of everything from like how a plant grows to the things that like affect photosynthesis and like does heat do it does water do it all those things and so like how would climate change affect a plant's ability to grow right that's a big deal uh we talked to them about soil we talked to them about water and fertility and um we talked to them about the industry a little bit and in the lab they get to do propagation so they take cuttings they uh learn about hydroponics and sort of we give them just the shotgun uh effect of horticulture as a whole like and and I know I'm not going to catch all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm like not everyone's going to leave the cl the class caring, and that's okay, right? They're they're not necessarily going to go and be the like oh I'm going to go start a nursery now, <laughs> you know? That's not that's not that's not even our goal. Like for me, if we teach our students to one critical critically evaluate scientific information, that's a big part of my class. Like how how do you know if a study's good? How do you know how the scientific process mm -hmm. works? So when you are bombarded with a thousand articles a day from weird sources, sometimes like, how do you know if it's true or not? Like, that's a big part of my class. Uh, but also like if I can teach one or two students that like that, that there is value in the world around us in our natural environment, um, then I call that a win. And so it's been really fulfilling in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm looking at teaching more going forward and, you know, working on some new classes, but I really enjoy uh, intro horticulture because it's, you know, I feel like my job is to get them interested, teach them enough that they can understand like, and if they wanted to go and grow their own garden, they could kind of do that a little bit or at least know where to start. And so I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. Also, it it sounds I, like it. Yeah. So, and I was just gonna say, and I, I have fun with it. I'm not the serious professor guy. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm just not that guy. And uh, so it, it's fun for me to get to know the students and like joke around with them and have a good time. And uh, if they learn some stuff along the way, that's that's, you know, great. Yeah. So I taught high school classes for two years, agri-science, and it's fun teaching the kids that, you know, like the topic. But it's also really fun to teach the kids that knew nothing about it and they just signed up for your right. class. I mean, 
you can connect the dots and they're like, oh, there's a lot more to this than I thought. And you can really make some really big impacts on their lives. So that's always fun. And that's cool that you're having that experience as well. Yeah, I I really like it. It's fun for me. And, you know, I I find that I am, regardless of what I do, I feel like I'm an educator at Mm -hmm. heart. And whether I'm podcasting or TikToking or uh, in the classroom, like that's what I like to do. I find joy in doing that. And so I try to bring that into all the different like aspects of my life. You know, that's a really good point because I honestly don't know how you manage it. You've got your professor, you've got your podcast, Plant Pathology. And you've also got a new book, but we'll talk about the new book in a little bit. But tell us about the podcast. Like, what was the inspiration behind that? Because you also involve some of your class stuff in that podcast. Yeah. So, Planthropology started um, uh, in 2019. Mm. I started my first episode was like November of 2019. And I was like writing a dissertation and I didn't want to. <laughs> uh, so, I was like, you know what I need? I need a podcast that will help me. <laughs> it, it did not help me finish the dissertation, uh, but it but it also I think did help me like not lose my mind. A there you go. Bit. Whatever works, right? Um, we had I said whatever I, works, right? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and we had a new department chair start at the same time, and as he was sort of interviewing and getting into it, he was talking about how um, he thought we need to do a better job of outreach with our information. Mm. You know, in academia, we, we have this sort of reputation of gatekeeping information, right? Like we, we do all this science. So we, we take the taxpayer money, we do all our science, we write these articles, we put these articles in journals that the taxpayer has to pay again for if they want to read. Mm, yeah. Right. So there is, we're not closing that feedback loop. And I, I am passionate about our need as a an academic institution to quit being this way, right? That is a big deal to me, uh, which is why I put science out there like on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and, and the podcast, because I feel like I can take some of these concepts that literally the people that listen to my show have paid for, whether they realize it or not, uh, and give them back a little bit. But our department chair was like, well, we need to do a better job. And he said, and, and do things like social media and traditional media and podcasts. And I'd had, I have experience with social and traditional media, um, but I'd never done a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that, that kind of and stuck in my brain, right? And so uh, a friend and I were up here talking one day soon after I got this job at Texas Tech. And um, we were just talking about some of the uh, native plants in our area and how the indigenous peoples of our area had like profound impacts on the land and how they would manage things with fire and drive um herds of large game which would change the the landscape and all this stuff and i was like this would be a funny podcast or a fun podcast not funny this would be a, a fun podcast and we kind of laughed about it a little bit and um then like 10 months later i was like oh no i actually think this would be a fun podcast <laughs> and so like the name came from like the anthropology of plants like our human connection to nature and the environment that's also yeah you've yeah. got a lot of really good episodes covering a ton of topics i mean one thing, one of your recent episodes was talking about everything is mustard. Like so many plants can take their, their origins from mustard. And that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, that, that brings us into like plant breeding mm-hmm. and how long have we been doing that? And the answer is really freaking long time, right? <laughs> like, um, but then I've gotten to interview some really, really cool, just like plant folks from 
all across the world and in different parts of the industry. And I interview students and grad students and industry professionals and volunteers and just like garden enthusiasts and like anyone who will talk to me, honestly, that likes plants. Um, and it's like, selfishly, I've learned so much. Like I've learned so much like in guests telling me what they do and then me going back and like researching it more. Yeah. Like, it's a way for me to sort of stay in the literature, so to speak, without having to like read papers every day. And, <laughs> More uh, engaging than reading papers, I imagine. Yeah, I, I just my brain <laughs> wanders and I'm like, oh, I just read that sentence, you know. Um, so it's been really fun. It has been super rewarding, super fulfilling. I'm going on, gosh, three and a half years now, which is wild. And uh, I, I'll keep going as long as I can. That's all. Well, congratulations on three and a half years. I mean, it yeah, seems thanks. like you've built a really good audience. I mean, especially on Twitter of people that follow you and want to learn more about plants, want to listen to podcasts and all the guests that you have on there, which is cool. And I love that you also relate it to your um, being a professor and having students involved with it and sharing projects that they're working on. So, you know, people at home can, you know, get a free education or something and just kind of see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been really good. And I, I do, you know, I, I make my students every semester do some kind of a science communication mm -hmm. project at the end of the semester and they can make a TikTok, or they can do a, like a YouTube video or they can do like a five minute podcast or whatever. And it's been really interesting to see like what they come up with and um, like the topics they pick, the, like the rules are pretty much, it just has to be about plants. Um, you know, and I give them some prompts about stuff that we cover in class, but like, you can talk about whatever. Something's interesting. Mm -hmm. You see a fun article, do some research and, uh, make a TikTok, whatever. And it's, it, it's a lot of fun. I bet it is. It's so, that's so fun. Um, and also the next thing, which I didn't know this until yesterday when I was looking up on your Twitter and trying to do, you know, trying to prepare for a podcast, you've got a cool book coming out, which looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, hang on. I've got it. I actually, so I've been working on this for like a year and I know it's going to be backwards and nice in the thing probably. Um, but yeah, so I was approached by a publisher called neon squid um, at the beginning of last year saying, Hey, we've got this idea for a book. We've kind of written the first couple of spreads and, you know, have put the pitch together and we need an author. And I think the, the publisher I work with actually found me on either TikTok or through the podcast or hmm. both and, and reached out. And so, yeah, it's been about a year in the making and I just got my author's copies this week at like Saturday. We're recording on Wednesday. Like I just oh, that's got so it. exciting. And, uh, so it actually comes out um, July 11th, 2023, okay. um, but it's already available for pre-order like anywhere, like online booksellers. Um, but yeah, it's called Plants to the Rescue, and it's about uh, kind of some of the stuff we've been talking about, food supply and climate change and um, pollution and stuff like that, and how scientists are either working with plants or discovering new ways that plants can help us address those mm -hmm. issues, or working on cool breeding projects and technology projects to help us like fight some of the, sorry, uh, fight some of those challenges. Like for example, we've got, um, let me find it. I don't know. I, it's funny cause I just got this and I still have to like scroll through. I'm like, I don't know what it is in this book. <laughs> You're still learning. About uh, it, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, no, this is compelling audio. Um, like we've got a spread in here about glow in the dark plants. Oh, no way. And I'll see if I can kind of show you this. Um, so there are researchers that have found that they can 
breed bioluminescence into plants. Okay. And like you can charge them up like a glow in the dark sticker. Uh, and then they sort of radiate a glow and they've, they've, they've made a, um, I don't remember what plant they've, they've done it in basil. They've done it in watercress and a couple of other things, but they've made plants that can glow at night for like over an hour. Wow. And so they're working on breeding it. Um, maybe using some genes from like phytoplankton, like the glowing phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. So as that plant moves, it generates glow and energy, um, for like illumination in parks, like, you don't have to have street lights if all the trees glow, right? And and stuff like that. Um, there's research now into harnessing just kinetic energy from trees by hooking electrodes up to them and capturing like shedded heat energy after photosynthesis and turning it into electricity, or just as the wind blows, like turning them into wind generators hmm. and uh, using some of the stuff that's already out there and the plants are already doing to help us be like more green and more efficient in our, in our ecosystems. Really cool stuff. Yeah. And capturing the energy that's already there. I'm thinking, so I'm here in Florida. I'm just imagining um, like a hurricane coming through and all of the trees and plants, just like blowing so crazy and it being super yeah. bright. That's wild. Yeah. And, and so like, there's so much cool, um, like future technology and plant science and things they're already working on. So this book is aimed at like eight to 10, eight to 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. It's not a uh, kid's nonfiction um, about that, about some of the cool things we're doing in plant science um, just to try to address all of these challenges that we're facing as sort of as a species, as a global community. Right. And uh, uh, even things like, and we, we talk about fungi a little bit in here, even though they're not plants and I'm, someone's going to say something <laughs> to that about to the, me about that I know um, but like you can use fungi and grow them into building materials mm. or into a material that's a lot like styrofoam so they can package and ship things in this like fungi container and then it just completely biodegrades mm. um, so just just cool technologies that you know can enhance the way we live that can fit into our current society and just be more efficient it seems like you know plants and I mean even just nature in general has so much stuff that we can use in ways that we wouldn't really think about it. I mean, whether it's creating energy with plants or creating, you know, like you just said, packaging with fungi, it's really, we just have to figure out the right way to, to use it because most of the stuff is already there. We just didn't, haven't really realized it. Yeah. And, and, and that's such a great point. And I think like we have used nature to this point over the past couple hundred years in sort of a very exploitative mm -hmm. sort of way where we, uh, exploit the ecosystems and and I, I i'm i don't like to make value judgments on people for doing things that they didn't understand like they didn't they didn't know what they didn't know it's like oh yeah we'll cut down trees it's fine like because we need the wood like i i i don't fault people for needing to survive yeah. like you know what i mean um i think that we we unfortunately cast that value judgment a lot unfairly like no they're they're just trying to survive they're they were people then we're people now we're just trying to make it um, but now I think we can work almost like more collaboratively with nature to maintain our ways of life uh, and maintain the environment at the same time. We just have to be willing to do it. Yeah, that's a really good perspective, too, because I feel like just, you know, hating on the people that came before us for what they did like, doesn't accomplish anything. And then also, no, they didn't have a lot of the metrics, a lot of the scientific tools that we have where we can gather all this data. But now I feel like we're, you know, we're realizing what we've done, that we need to fix it. And we're taking numerous steps with countless technologies and practices and stuff. So, yeah, I think that's awesome. That's a really good perspective also. 
Yeah, and I think that's important because, uh, you know, if you spend any time on Twitter or on social media, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Twitter's bad. Uh, oh, it's bad. It's rough, man. Uh, just just the climate doom and gloom is, is it's depressing. And all that I think makes people do is give up. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm not going to be able to fix this. Like, oh, we've already destroyed everything. I'm just going to quit. When the fact is, like, we haven't. Like, things are maybe not great, but we are nothing if not survivors like as a species and we can use the tools we have we can be creative and we can solve a lot of the problems um by just not quitting and i think when we message incorrectly instead of like trying to scare people into doing better like that doesn't work that's never worked um you can't scare people into being better i think we can educate people into that um, and give people the tools they need to make the decisions that maybe they need to make or that are beneficial to all of us as a society. Oh, hundred percent. I think that's a really good point too. I mean, educating does so much more in the long run than just using scare tactics, because when you're yeah. using scare tactics, you're trying to get people on your side. You, you're not trying to educate them or change their mind. You're just trying to paint them or somebody else as the bad guy. If you're educating yep. it, you've got hard data you're doing it for the right reasons. So I think they're, what you're doing is awesome. I think that's a very, very good way of thinking about it. I appreciate that. Um, and so I have some quick fire questions for you, actually, before I forget. Okay. Um, let's see. There's a couple. One, you've, you've talked about this, I think, on your podcast a couple of times. How do seedless fruits work? And I've had some people ask <laughs> me this. Like, how do you breed something to where it's like, okay, I'm not going to make seeds? How, how does that happen? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, and it's it, it can be fairly complicated, mm -hmm. right? And we can do it in almost anything. Uh, essentially, we mess with the way that the chromosomes in the seeds uh, work. So we'll take a plant that has, say, uh, two pairs of chromosomes, a diploid plant or whatever, and we'll use a chemical um, at seed production to sort of double the chromosome. We call it a tetraploid or a polyploid hmm. plant. And then we cross those together. Those are both plants because they have an even number of chromosomes. And I'm, I don't know, I'm probably getting more down in the weeds than you want me to, but like uh, we cross those together and we get a plant that has like an uneven, uneven set of chromosomes. And so it can't reproduce. It's sterile. Um, it can't, like it, they just don't match up right. It can't like breed correctly. So essentially we take plants that have seeds we um, manipulate them in certain ways, and then we can make a next generation that doesn't have seeds. And we, I, people, people say this all to me all the time. Like I, I had a video one time about seedless bananas, like how all oh, the yeah. bananas you buy are seedless, in the in the in 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 the fact that they can't like you can't plant those seeds. There are tiny little specks of seeds in your Cavendish banana, but they're not viable, and they're small and they're soft and like. Like a real wild banana has like seeds the size of marbles in it. Hmm. And they're like full of seeds. Um, so we've bred these polyploid bananas um, to be effectively seedless. And then what we do is we just like asexually propagate them. They put out little shoots on the root system. We'll take those and replant them. Uh, essentially, we just clone the plants after we have them, um, after we've made a seedless species. And it works the same way in grapes and in oranges and watermelons and uh, pretty much all the other plants that are seedless on the market. It's not that they don't have seeds. It's just that they're small, they're usually soft, and they're not viable. So that's a good example of not being a GMO, but being, you know, selective breeding practices, right? 
Right. So that right. I hear a lot from people. They're like, it's seedless watermelon. Like that's got to be a GMO, right? Because you're genetically engineering it to not reproduce. Like, eh, well, no, it, you, you are genetically doing stuff to it, but it's just selective breeding. Right. And I think, I think that's a great point to, to kind of drive home too, is that like words mean things. Yeah. <laughs> and when we, when we say GMO, we're talking about like a very specific, like targeted gene insertion that you use like advanced take techniques mm -hmm. to do. Cause if we really want to get down to it, any, any combination of genes is a genetically modified organism. Uh, you can use like agrobacterium and inoculate a plant with uh, a new gene or a new trait from something. And it happens in nature. So are there natural GMOs that happen just because of agrobacterium bacterium. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of. Um, so like when we talk about like GMO crops, one, there's not that many of them that are on yeah. the market. And two, like it means a very, very specific thing. And like conventional breeding, uh, even if we like mess with the seeds a little bit along the way is not that it's, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. It's a whole different ball game. And then I know another quick fact, um, the first carrots were purple, right? And then they were bred to be orange. I believe that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I looked it up years ago and apparently I think this is in the Netherlands. They were purple, but then to honor the king or something, they wanted to make an, or, uh, um, an, yeah, an orange carrot. And so they had to breed them for a couple of years and then they eventually got to be orange. So that was kind of like how yeah. that happened. And I heard that. Yeah, I was that's like, yeah, that's selective breeding. That's not genetic modification. Well, and if you think about like what plants used to look like oh yeah, yeah five thousand years ago ten thousand years ago like most of the plants we see today are completely unrecognizable uh like uh teosinte which is like early corn like early maize was like a single little tassel of grains that looked a lot like wheat or something else like it's a similar plant it's a cereal uh and then over time they would select for the biggest best one and replace those replant those seeds because that's what they would harvest and uh through that and targeted breeding and other things like that and even the plants sort of doing it on their own which is a weird thing to think yeah. about that like as we domesticated them they kind of domesticated us back uh by sort of it, it's a weird thing to think about but like th this process of genetic adaptation and evolution is not a one-way street like it has influences on everything else around it it is a complex system where as the plants grew like bigger ears of corn those are the ones we would select for and so that's sort of like quote unquote incentive for the plant to big grow bigger ears of corn and like we drive each other uh through this interesting co-evolutionary process that uh, we would eat more corn we would plant more corn the corn would have more chance to breed and develop and we'd pick the big ones and over time we come up with sweet corn and grain corn and popcorn and all of the many things that we have today. And so like, I think it is, it is important to understand that like we've been breeding plants for 10,000 years. Uh, we just happen to do it in a lab sometimes today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you touch base on it. Um, we really kind of directly helped plants evolve, like by doing selective breeding, by helping corn for grow sure. bigger, watermelon grow differently. Like there's so many plants that because we have had an impact on it, we've helped it evolve much different than how it might've evolved just, you know, in the wild on its own. Right. It's really, it's, and it's an interesting thing to think about an interesting concept. And, um, yeah, I think, I think everyone should like just Google, like what did a, what did corn look like 10,000 yeah. years ago? And I think people will be shocked. Yeah. You think it, you're like, Oh, it's always looked like corn. And then you see it, you're like, that's not corn. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You can kind of see some kernels in there, but like, it's a whole different. It's like thing. that is not going to make popcorn. That is not going to be creamed corn. Yep. Like what? Is, well, the same thing was true for like bananas, right? Like weren't bananas like super small or something? 
Well, and yeah, and there still are some small bananas, but again, over time, like, and not just us, like other animals would select for the biggest, sweeter ones. Yeah, and yeah, those true. are the seeds that would get passed on, you know? Uh, and then, you know, over time we have, uh, bred different kinds of bananas and selected for different kinds of bananas. And, um, now most of the bananas on the market are, are called Cavendish and that, you know, has been the big one for quite a while, but there's several other kinds. There's still some little ones and some different ones. And then there's plantains, which are closely related, but they're not bananas, but they kind of look like bananas. And so <laughs> we have like, there's a lot of crops out there that, um, depending on where you are, you may never see. That's right? true. It just. It's just an interesting, a lot of them are still very local. Uh, they're used by cultures all over the world and they just haven't made it into our market because we don't use those plants in the same way, but they may be very popular in Asia or South America or, uh, you know, somewhere else. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you got my wheels turning about why animals would select the, you know, the juicier fruit, for example, and why those would thrive. The animals would eat the juicier fruit and then obviously like, you know, poop out the seeds. And that would grow yep. more. And then the other ones wouldn't get eaten and would die off. Is that correct? Like a very simplified yeah, version. That, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So like the ones that get spread, they have sort of a competitive advantage there. So if you think of it this way, okay, if you have, um, say, a plant, whatever plant, let's let's call it a, a bean, yeah. like a bean plant. So if the seeds from that bean plant drop right on the ground where that bean plant is growing, they're competing for the exact same resources, right? It's the same plant, they need the same things, they're growing in the same place. Um, and if like no animal ever comes and eats them, if they're never spread, like all the plants grow up in the same place, they're competing for the same mm -hmm. resources. So there's no competitive advantage to any of them. But then you get one that has like these really big beans or peas on it, and this herbivore comes by and is like, oh, these, these are better, and they eat on those and spread those seeds somewhere else. Now those plants may have a competitive advantage because there's more resources, they're competing with different species they're maybe outside of their niche and so they may survive a little longer uh or you have a population of something and a disease comes through and kills 80 percent of them uh but the 20 percent that are left say has the gene in it some trait in it that makes it resistant to that disease yeah. so that's the trait that gets passed on right those are the genes that get passed on that's how we see like resistance in a lot of our weed crops or not weed crops, but weed plants in our crops. Mm -hmm. So like we have uh, pigweed, I don't know, uh, Palmer amaranth, yeah. like uh, you see it called the careless weed, all kinds of other stuff. Like we have some up here on the high plains that is almost completely resistant to Roundup or glyphosate. Um, because if you go out and you spray and maybe you split, spray at a light rate or you don't get good coverage and there's a few plants there that have some kind of genetic resistance to it, those are the ones that are going to survive to grow more seeds. Mm. And that next generation is going to be a little more resistant. And over time, either through bad practice or incomplete spraying or bad rates, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, we select for the strongest ones by applying that pressure to them. And that's just how evolution works. It's kind of an arms race, right? Like uh, you've got a, uh, a, a fox and a bunch of slow rabbits and one fast rabbit the fast rabbit's going to be the one that survives to make more fast rabbits. Mm -hmm. Well, then the, the foxes can't cast, catch those faster rabbits unless there is an especially fast fox. And that's the one that's going to get enough food to survive and move on. So that that's how the process works. It's like whoever survives is the one that gets to like reproduce and move on. And so we apply pressure to our systems and we're selecting for the strongest individuals. 
And it keeps going until the rabbit and the fox can go both run like 300 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and then at some point, yeah, we reach some kind of like limit based on the ecosystem or whatever. But yeah, no, exactly. Like it just keeps going. And so, uh, you know, and that's that's a simplified mm-hmm. version. But um, in general, yeah, it's, it's whatever can survive the conditions that it's in or be the most successful in the conditions that it's in is, is what survives. And so, yeah, if you've got an animal spreading your seed to somewhere that um, maybe you don't have to compete as much, maybe you can get bigger and taller and make more fruits uh, or, or whatever, those are the ones that get spread around. Yeah, that makes much more sense. I mean, especially whether it's plants or weeds, because I know that's a lot of, a lot of people have questions about that, about, you know, how do weed resistant, um, how does that happen? You know, when we develop something to purposely kill a weed, well, how do weeds then build resistance to that? So that makes a lot of sense and makes sense about why we're still trying to figure out weeds and we haven't killed them all. So yeah, very exactly. good analogy. Um, well, Vikram, this has been awesome geeking out about plants with you. Um, you've got a lot of content out there. If people want to follow you, you're on Twitter. You've also got your podcast. Where else can they go to follow you and, and stay up to date with all you're doing? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I don't do Facebook a whole lot anymore. It mostly just makes me sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can you can search for Planthropology, which is just anthropology with a PL on the front. Uh, I've had to have like slightly different handles on different platforms because somebody beat me to mm-hmm. them on like Twitter. But I think I'm Planthropology Pod on um, Instagram, and then Planthropology underscore on Twitter. Uh, you can also get me at the Plant Prof on. Um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, even though I don't do anything with it, and TikTok. Uh, you can also email me at planthropologypod at gmail.com. Sweet. Well, I'll link all that below, man. I really appreciate it. Always fun to talk plants. Um, I know agriculture kind of has the plant side and the animal side. I'm very much on the plant side. I enjoy the plant side. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great to virtually meet you. Great to talk plants with you. Best of luck. And I can't wait for the book to come out. Good luck. I'm going to have to buy that really early before I have kids. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks to Vikram for coming on the show, and thanks to you for listening. Check out all the links below in the description of this episode. And of course, like I said before, check us out on YouTube. Go see some videos, go see some highlights of some of our podcasts, as well as some awesome farm tour videos that we have. So go check that out again in the description, as well as just go to youtube.com slash farm traveler. We would appreciate it. We're so close to a thousand. That would be amazing if we made it. So thanks. We'll see you next week. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight, Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.